Welcome, I'm Tommy Moore and I'm currently a teacher at a bioscience education centre and studying for my master's degree in neuroscience. This podcast facilitates engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners and other leaders in psychedelic assisted therapies to provide expert opinions, share research results and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. In today's discussion, we are going to review the clinical research on the use of psychedelics in psychiatry. So we're really going to provide a bit of an overview about where psychedelics fit into psychiatry. And we're actually going to be reviewing a review that was published in 2020, so just under three years ago, but it's still very, very relevant today. And it was published by David Nutt and Robin Carhart-Harris. Um, at the time, they were both at Imperial College London. Now, Robin Card Harris is over in the States. So, we will discuss a brief history of psychedelic research, recent developments in the field, and the potential of psilocybin as a treatment for various mental illnesses. We will be also providing an overview of the standard treatment model for depression and the precautions that must be taken before treatment. Finally, we will consider some of the challenges associated with the use of psychedelic therapy on a larger scale and the need for more formal training for therapists. Please keep in mind that the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, let's do this. So this review that I am reviewing is called The Current Status of Psychedelics in Psychiatry, a Review of Clinical Research by Treatment Condition. So I'll make sure to attach this to the episode when I publish it, so you can have a look and have a look through yourself as we go through. But I'm basically going to be paraphrasing most of this document. All of what is said here is also said within the uh, publication itself. With all of that said, let's begin. So, during the 1950s, Sandoz, S-A-N-D-O-Z, or Z, a Swiss pharmaceutical company, hired chemist Albert Hoffman, very famous Albert Hoffman, who uncovered the effects of lysergic acid dimethylamide, or LSD and the serotonergic psychedelic psilocybin. Sandoz released these drugs to the psychiatric research community, sparking a revolution in brain science and psychiatry across Western countries, particularly in the US. And as a side note, it was psychedelic research, particularly LSD, that we were able to actually uncover what serotonin is. So serotonin was actually discovered through LSD research. Very interesting. But before LSD was prohibited, the U.S. National Institutes of Health funded over 130 studies into its clinical uses, revealing positive outcomes for various disorders, including anxiety, depression, and alcoholism. However, LSD's recreational use and its link to the anti-Vietnam War movement prompted the prohibition of all psychedelics in the U.S., and this ban was later globally ratified by the 1971 UN Convention to Narcotics. Since then, funding, production, and research of psychedelic as clinical agents has come to a halt. 
But until recently, there were no companies manufacturing medical-grade psychedelics, making regulatory approval for clinical research, especially in clinical trials, extremely challenging and impossible in some countries, such as Germany. In the past decade or so, there has been a resurgence of research on psychedelic drugs in humans with a big focus on psilocybin. This revival can be attributed to two main factors. Firstly, the research conducted by Griffiths et al., so Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University, has demonstrated that a single high dose, 25 milligrams, of psilocybin administered in a psychotherapeutic setting resulted in long-lasting positive change in mood and well-being among non-depressed individuals. Secondly, neuroimaging studies at Imperial College London on healthy volunteers revealed that psilocybin had a significant impact on brain function, especially the default mode network, indicating an antidepressant effect. These findings suggest that psilocybin may be useful in treating depression and have led to further research in the UK and the US. Studies have shown and are continuing to show that a single 25 milligram dose of psilocybin had antidepressant effects on people with resistant depression or treatment resistant depression, anxiety and depression symptoms caused by life-threatening cancer diagnosis. Studies have also shown that psilocybin can be effective in treating alcohol and tobacco dependence. Based on these results, at least two companies have invested in funding multi-center dose-finding studies of psilocybin in depression. A search on clinicaltrials.gov as of April 2020 revealed over 30 registered psychedelic drug trials, mostly involving psilocybin, with a few involving LSD. These studies include research on anorexia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, addiction, and depression. And at least two of the depression trials, which are those of Compass Pathways and USONA Institute, are randomized clinical trials that comply with the registration process of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and European Medicines Agency and have been given fast-track status in the field. So they've given breakthrough therapy designation where they're trying to fast-track the approval process. Several trials for various disorders are currently open-label studies aimed at gathering data on feasibility and safety which will be used to support subsequent double-blind randomized clinical trials. If positive outcomes are observed, which we presume that they will be, and they have been over the last few years since this uh, paper was published in these regulatory standard trials, it is likely that psilocybin will become a licensed treatment for certain mental illnesses. And that is indicative of what has happened in Australia. From July 1st, 2023, Australian psychiatrists provided that they have the appropriate education and training will be able to use in an approved treatment model, which is amazing. In depression trials, a four-stage treatment model has emerged as the standard. So we spoke about this in the last episode, but a quick recap. The first stage involves an assessment to determine whether the patient is suitable for psychedelic therapy, taking into account both mental and physical health, individuals with a history of bipolar disorder or psychosis, as well as those with significant health issues such as hypertension, are typically excluded due to the transient increase in blood pressure caused by psychedelics. Certain medicines that block or attenuate the effects of psychedelics must be stopped or reduced before treatment. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors 
SSRIs should ideally be stopped or tapered down as they produce subsensitivity of the 5-HD2A receptor. And remember, I'm just paraphrasing this document. I'm not providing any direct advice. I'm not a medical doctor. Please keep that in mind as we're going through here. In modern studies, there are usually three to five preparation sessions that take place on the day before drug administration. These sessions involve at least one trained therapist, often referred to as a guide, who prepares the participant for the experience by providing an overview of the dynamics and nature of the psychedelic experience. The guide also explains how the experience can be challenging for many people and provides guidance on how to best confront any challenges that may arise during the experience in order to maximize its benefits. So in recent psychedelic drug studies, especially those involving psilocybin, this standardized four-stage process has emerged for depression treatment. So that is an assessment, which we just discussed briefly then. Then there's the preparation, the acute psychedelic experience, and the integration phase. So assessment, preparation, experience, integration. During the experience stage, Participants are provided with eye shades and earphones playing a pre-selected music compilation, which is thought to enhance the therapeutic process. And we discussed this in the last episode as well. And so those sessions last four to five hours, during which the patient is encouraged to delve deeper into their thoughts, visions, and memories. And most, most patients prefer not to be disturbed. The guide or guides are present and can provide reassurance by holding the patient's hand with their permission. The day after the experience, an integration session is held during which the guide helps the patient to make sense of the experience. Talk-based psychotherapeutic sessions are also available to process any issues that may have emerged, integrate insights, and provide guidance on positive cognitive and lifestyle changes. These treatments involve a single or a few sessions over a few weeks with psychotherapeutic input and are considered a new paradigm in psychiatric medicine known as drug-facilitated psychotherapy or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And a big reason why psychedelics may have a transdiagnostic action, that is they may have potential for treating a variety of disorders, could be because they are all considered internalizing disorders. In depression, for instance, patients often engage in self-critical inner narratives and ruminate about their failings and guilt. In addiction, the narrow and rigid behavior is driven by drug craving and the person constantly thinks about obtaining the drug. Similarly, individuals with obsessive compulsive disorder and anorexia excessively ruminate about threats to their well-being, such as contamination or the effects of eating and things like that. And according to neuroimaging studies, Psychedelics seem to disrupt the brain systems and circuits that encode these re repetitive thoughts and behaviors. So the patient is able to bring awareness to those particular behaviors and patterns of thinking that seem to be stuck. I mean, we can all resonate with this from time to time when we get stuck in that rut or stuck in a particular behavior and it's hard to break out of it. And based on these neuroimaging studies, it seems that not only is this default mode network being disrupted, there also seems to be an increase in the connection between various brain regions that aren't usually connected. 
So as an example, let's think about the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is a region in the brain that's very deep within the brain that is controlling and regulating many different functions, including mood, appetite, body temperature, among other things. So when we are hungry and we have the craving for food, our hypothalamus will signal to various areas of our brain to bias our behavior in a food-seeking manner. So we're scanning our environment, we're using our eyes and our senses to try and find where that food is. But it isn't often that we think too clearly or bring too much awareness to that feeling inside of us because we don't frame it or contextualize that hunger as bad or good. It's just that the hunger is there and now we're foraging for food. Now we think about something like rumination or self-critical thinking and we get stuck in these patterns of thinking that in the context of our brain and our life, it may seem like that's the appropriate response to that internal drive. And it's very difficult to simply try to put our minds to forcefully suppress that internal feeling or that internal drive. I know this is one analogy and it doesn't explain everything, but it might help in understanding how certain brain regions get stuck in particular patterns and make it very, very difficult to come out of those patterns. Because every time we re-engage in a thought or re-engage in a behavior, it becomes easier and easier to do, whether that's a thought or whether it's movement. So according to neuroimaging studies, psychedelics seem to disrupt the brain systems and circuits that encode for these styles of repetitive thoughts and, and behaviors. So by creating a therapeutic window that disrupts entrenched thinking, the psychedelic experience can allow for insight and a recalibration of one's spectrum of associations, especially within this psychotherapeutic support network. Recent published trials on psychedelic therapy have also shown promising data in terms of tolerability and efficacy. Although effect sizes have generally been greater than those of current treatments, confirmation biases could be inflating these results. Nevertheless, retention rates are very high and few adverse effects have been reported. However, more comparative efficacy studies with current treatments are needed to fully assess the potential of psilocybin therapy. One of the main obstacles to using psychedelic therapy on a larger scale is the current resource-intensive model. Although the treatment only requires a few doses of medicine, it is currently expensive due to many regulatory hurdles associated with the classification of psychedelics as illegal drugs under UN conventions and Western government drug laws. Another challenge is to train enough therapists in psychedelic therapy to ensure that they are well-trained and follow good practices. And this requires structuring, manualizing, monitoring, and delivering high-quality training and practice. Several research centers that investigate psychedelic therapy currently offer training under the supervision of more experienced therapists. So if this therapy becomes more widely used and available, more formal training will be necessary to train a large number of therapists. And here I will remind you that Mind Medicine Australia has a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies, which is available to psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, and other healthcare professionals. Okay, so we've reviewed the current status of psychedelics in psychiatry from 2020. We are in 2023 now, 
and psychedelics are going to be legal in a psychiatric setting from July 1st, which is coming up very, very quickly. And it seems that because of this legislation change, Australia will soon become leaders in the research space. So that calls for psychiatrists, psychologists, neuroscientists and the likes to be able to deliver this style of therapy to more people around Australia and around the world because it's likely that the rest of the world will follow suit provided that treatments continue to be effective. Wonderful. Now, again, please keep in mind that the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. I'm not a medical doctor. Please consult with your physician before making any changes to your lifestyle. With all of that said, thank you very, very much for your time and attention, and I look forward to hearing some of your feedback. <music>